The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 62 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 57, Behold the Vision. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by George Klein, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in October of 1968. Taking a look at our cover, this is one of the most iconic Avengers covers ever, and it certainly ranks up there as one of the most iconic Marvel covers in history. I absolutely love the monochromatic color scheme. It's absolutely fantastic. The Avengers cowering in fear of the unknown is spectacular, and it really helps set the tone from the start of the issue that Vision is something entirely unknown and certainly worthy of that possible fear. Now, you'll notice the art throughout this entire issue really is an excellent film noir style of art and of storytelling, and it's really great. So instead of starting off with an opening splash page like we normally get, we actually jump right into the sequential storytelling, and we introduce the primary villain for this issue, the Vision. Though, at least for the first few pages here, the character is yet unnamed. I love this opening, one, because we get this great kind of narration, again, like a, like a film noir, but we also get this awesome Kurosawa-style rain. Anyone who is familiar with the works of Akira Kurosawa knows that he frequently makes amazing use of rain. One of the best uses is in his legendary film, Rashomon, in which the story of a trial is retold by a couple of different individuals and they're basically doing so while they wait out this rainstorm and it is just the most torrential rain I've ever seen in a film and it's really spectacular and this is exactly what that brings to mind. So as the issue starts off, Vision is making his way through New York towards the penthouse apartment of Janet Van Dyne of Wasp and as he does so, he finds Goliath getting ready to leave Wasp's apartment for the night because he says that he has an experiment that he needs to do. We actually get some really, really crazy vocabulary words from Goliath here. And it's one of those little touches that reminds me that although comic books of this era are kind of meant for kids at the same time, they're certainly not playing to the lowest common denominator and they aren't rotting the brains of children like they have consistently been accused of over the past, you know, 75 years. As Goliath leaves, he mentions that he has something that he really needs to talk to Janet about. However, because he's got to go take care of this bacteria experiment, they'll have to do it another time. And Wasp is kind of put out because she was under the impression that Goliath was going to propose this night, and he doesn't. Now, based on the way Goliath acts, it's very likely that that's exactly what Goliath has in mind. So at the same time that he is this workaholic, he obviously is thinking enough ahead and is interested enough and concerned enough in their relationship that he wants to elevate it to you know, the proverbial next level. He wants to get engaged and eventually marry Janet. So I like this because it demonstrates that the 
relationship is moving forward, is moving in an actual direction. There is positive motion, which for anyone who is a fan of comic books or sitcoms, where a lot of the storytelling is dependent on the back and forth play of sexual tension, you know that an actual relationship moving forward is often counterproductive to the overall narrative. And in this case, instead of dealing with that, they actually are moving the relationship forward, which is nice. So as Wasp kind of thinks over what's going on and takes in the fact that she's pretty sure Goliath was supposed to propose and didn't, a shadowy figure enters from her balcony that we know is Vision, but Janet has no idea who it is. And as the creature approaches, as the character approaches, she refers to it as an unearthly inhuman vision, hence the name Vision. So because Wasp is so surprised and really terrified by this creature in her house, she shrinks down to her wasp size and flies through a keyhole to get away behind a locked door. Now I love this because the keyhole gag is really priceless. It reminds me a lot of someone trying to spy through a keyhole and for everyone who's seen the Ant-Man film, you remember there was a whole sequence where Ant-Man was learning to jump through the keyhole and just kept slamming into the door, which is really, really funny. Now, just as Wasp thinks that she is safe behind this door, she begins to see something weird happening on the wall, and Vision literally comes through the wall. And you know, you gotta think, Wasp's horror here, because she really is absolutely horrified with what's going on, it really is justified, because being able to pass directly through a wall like this is really something new and different for the Avengers. So not only has someone broken into Wasp's house, but on top of that, this particular individual is able to pass through walls, so there's nowhere that Wasp can get away. There's nowhere she can run, nowhere she can hide. And, I mean, that is a very terrifying prospect for anyone, even a superhero. I also really, really like the Kirby crackle that is going on around the effect where Vision passes through the wall. Just when Vision has Wasp cornered, he fires this heat beam from his eyes that Wasp describes as being unbearable. Only, just as it's getting going, it seems to backfire and Vision cries out in pain and is staggered back. And down on street level, Goliath hears this scream, realizes that it's coming from Janet's apartment, and so he goes straight up King Kong style and scales his way up the building. There's a few things here that really help reinforce, in my mind, that film noir sense. The first off, again, is still the rain, because again, rain is a common element in a lot of film noir stories. Everyone is wearing trench coats. Janet's wearing one in the beginning of the issue. Goliath is wearing one here. The man on the street is wearing one. And then finally, again, we get the reference to the 1930s era King Kong film. While King Kong itself is not a film noir, it is of that same kind of classic film era. It does predate film noir a little bit. Film noir tends to be in the 40s and 50s, but we certainly get that classic golden age of cinema feel here. So of course, Goliath scales the building, breaks into Wasp's apartment by smashing through a window and then shrinking down to mostly normal size. It looks like he's probably at the eight to 10 foot size because he does tower over the collapsed vision and Wasp, but he's certainly small enough to fit inside the room. Now the interaction between the pair is great here because even given everything that has happened, happened, Wasp still berates Goliath for breaking the window to her balcony. She actually goes so far as to say that, you know, at least this other guy, Vision, had the common decency to open the door before he broke in so that she doesn't have to replace the window. Now, after all this has happened, the pair decide that they are going to take this 
person that they have found back to Avengers headquarters to try and figure out what is going on. And while that happens, we get to catch up with the rest of the Avengers. So first off, we find Hawkeye going to visit his girlfriend, Natasha Romanoff, who has returned to her ways as Black Widow. This comes as a bit of a surprise to Hawkeye because last time we saw Natasha, she had decided that she was giving up the superhero life, in part to be able to pursue a relationship with Hawkeye, but in part because of her negative experience on her last super spy mission for Nick Fury. Now, obviously, in the interim, something has happened to encourage her to come back to being a superhero and a super spy, and she informs Hawkeye that she has a mission that she's going to take on for Nick Fury. Now, just as the two get into kind of their standard banter bickering mode, Hawkeye receives a call from the Avengers and cuts the conversation short and heads out. Next, we find Black Panther walking down the streets of New York, again in a trench coat, and there is a robbery going on. Black Panther takes this opportunity to stop the robbery and does so in a fairly dramatic fashion. Once the robbers get to the car, Black Panther smashes his way in through the windshield and he takes out all three of these crooks. A couple of things worth noting here. First is the broken glass effect in the panel where Black Panther smashes through the windshield. Normally in comics when we get a shattered glass image like this, you get kind of big chunks of glass so that you know that they broke the window, but that's about it. In this case, there is really great detailed line work in each of the bigger shards of glass to show that it is further shattered beyond just the big pieces of glass. If you've ever broken a window, especially one that's a little bit more impact resistance, like a windshield, you'll know that it really spiderwebs into those very fine pieces of glass. Even if it breaks off in bigger pieces, it's still shattered into smaller pieces within that big piece. So I love the realism that this effect gives, and I think it looks great. Secondly, while Black Panther is walking through the streets of New York, we get to see some of his internal monologue and the doubts that are going through his mind. He talks about, at one point, being a prince in far-off Africa with matchless wealth, but that he found the throne an empty, hollow mockery. So instead, he came to America to become an Avenger looking for fulfillment. In a lot of ways, to me, it really kind of reminds me of the story of Siddhartha, where he walks away looking for enlightenment or fulfillment from this matchless wealth that he had at one point. I mean, there are a lot of historical stories like this or legendary individuals like this, but it, it so happens that I just finished reading the book Lord of Light, and so the idea of Siddhartha is a little bit more fresh in my mind. But the idea that Black Panther had everything that most of us could ever want, but in reality for him, it didn't mean much. As he called it, it was hollow and empty and a mockery. So he he comes and he looks for fulfillment elsewhere because wealth and power and material things aren't necessarily the place where we find the most spiritual fulfillment. And I really like that Black Panther is kind of this deeper, more spiritual, more intense kind of character. And the fact that we're getting this kind of character development, it's really awesome. Once Black Panther stops the robbery and turns the suspects over to the police, he acknowledges a message from the rest of the Avengers and heads to Avengers Mansion, where they are all investigating Vision. What they discover is that Vision is a synthesoid, which is effectively an entirely artificial man. So instead of muscle and bone and blood, he has all of the 
these things, but they're all synthetic. So he has human anatomy, but made from artificial parts. It also turns out that this is something that Hank Pym was looking into at one point, but for some reason, which is currently unexplained, though we will get into next issue, he gave up this research. So as the Avengers are examining Vision, he regains consciousness and begins to attack the Avengers again. And although he is extremely powerful, Vision is eventually stopped by Goliath, who grows to his full size and just slams Vision against a wall. While this doesn't immediately disable Vision, it stops the fight long enough for them to kind of reason with Vision to, to try and talk with him. Eventually, Vision kind of collapses in a chair and confesses that he really doesn't know much, if anything, about himself. He really has no idea where he came from or what he's doing here. However, as he begins to kind of talk through what little he does know, it seems as though some kind of mental barrier, mental block is pried loose, and he starts getting little bits and pieces of his own story. And what he remembers is that he was created by Ultron 5. So if you remember back to Avengers 55, at the end of the issue, although Ultron was the kind of mastermind behind the reincarnated masters of evil, the Avengers didn't actually catch him. Ultron got away. And at this point, we figure out what Ultron's been doing in the interim. And that is Ultron has been creating Vision. And specifically, he created Vision with the intent of destroying the Avengers. It's unclear why he hates the Avengers so much, but Vision talks about just thinking about the Avengers and their faces fills him with a kind of hatred, which he finds very confusing. As a result, Vision says he no longer feels a desire to attack the Avengers, and he would like their help in determining exactly what's going on and why he feels this way and really where he came from. So he agrees to escort the Avengers to Ultron's secret lair, which we saw again in Avengers 55 and 56, is the hideout built inside a rundown tenement. And the Avengers, along with Vision, arrive, and as they do, they are being monitored by none other than Ultron 5. Now, one of the things Ultron reveals to we the reader, not to the Avengers, is that not only did he program and design Vision to destroy the Avengers, but he also designed him to black out at the critical moment earlier in the issue so that the Avengers would take him to the mansion, attempt to examine him, win their trust, and that Vision would lead the Avengers back here. So, although it seems that Ultron had hoped that Vision might destroy the Avengers, really his ultimate plan was to bring the Avengers to himself so that he could destroy them. And in fact, initially, Ultron's plan here is kind of a divide and conquer. So he uses jets of flame to kind of split up the Avengers a little bit. And as Goliath tries to help the rest of his fellow Avengers pass this trap, acting kind of as a jumping platform to get over the flames, he himself is dropped through a trap door and is then attacked by a different robot, some kind of automaton, as opposed to like Ultron or Vision who are artificial intelligences. This robot seems to be more of an automaton, and so Goliath is forced to fight this creature. Although, because this creature is able to surprise Goliath, unfortunately, it gets the complete jump on him, and he is taken captive. So as the Avengers attempt to regroup, knowing that Hank has at least been separated from them, they don't know he's been captured yet, Ultron breaks out a science fiction, horror, scary movie, mad scientist trope that is just amazing. And that is... 
Ultron slowly starts to move the walls in on the Avengers. Now, unfortunately, there are no spikes because that would just be like the icing on the cake cliche. I would probably start giggling like a schoolgirl over. But the walls are definitely coming in so as to close in and crush the Avengers. There are two particular pop culture references that this obviously brings to mind. The first is the trash compactor in Star Wars. But the other one is the Venture Brothers. For those who are not familiar with the Venture Brothers, it is a cartoon that frequently parodies the boy adventurer cartoons and comics of the 1960s, 1970s, like Johnny Quest, things like that, or like Scooby-Doo. And there is an episode in which the characters are stuck in a trap like this, and they're calling for help, literally calling on the phone for help, and describing the speed at which the wall moves, because this is a trap that they find themselves in so often. Spiked walls? How fast? Uh, slower than haunted house spiked walls, but not quite as slow as evil scientists spiked walls. Good! And I just love that clip. To be perfectly honest, this is probably somewhere in the mad scientist wall speed, if I had to guess. Now, as this is happening, Vision decides that he can't let this happen. And so he uses his ability to phase through the wall and goes to confront Ultron. This is a really interesting confrontation. Originally, Ultron takes it that Vision has returned to him and is coming back to his side. And instead, Vision is basically angry with Ultron for making him this nameless, soulish imitation of a human being. And so he demands that Ultron release the Avengers because they've befriended him and specifically they've named him. You know, I, I really didn't think about it until just now, but just the idea of giving him a name really has a lot of power. In a lot of cultures and a lot of religions, the idea of a name has so much significance and so much power. You know, you think about Christianity and various sects thereof and the idea of, of demons and being able to hold power over demons and bind demons. One of the, the common threads is that you have to have the demon's true name and that by knowing that name and being able to use it, you have power over this demon. Well, if you don't have a name while maybe someone can't have that power over you? Are you really a complete entity? Are you really a full individual without that name? So just that idea that because the Avengers gave him a name, Vision is now at least willing to confront his creator on their behalf. Maybe not at this point in this issue willing to join the Avengers, but certainly willing to confront his creator. That's a, that's a huge step. That's a very important thing. Now Ultron tries to reason with Vision for a moment, talks about how the two of them shouldn't quarrel because they're so much above the human race and that really a few humans mean nothing to Ultron 5. Unfortunately for Vision, this is all done in order to lure him into a false sense of security so that Ultron can attack him by surprise. And Ultron thinks he has the upper hand, throws Vision into a seething vat of energy, which is great because it's basically a vat of Kirby Crackle. This vat of energy has no effect on Vision because Vision is able to phase his molecules so that he can pass right through it. And when this enrages Ultron yet again, Ultron charges Vision. Vision makes himself effectively immaterial. So again, Ultron just passes right through him, causing Ultron to smash headfirst into this wall, into this explosion. And earlier in the issue, Ultron threw an extremely overconfident streak and in some ridiculous villainous self-sabotage tells Vision that 
that his only weakness are basically the two connectors on the side of his head. So that when he plows into this wall head first, part of Ultron kind of self-destructs and Ultron is defeated. So thankfully the Avengers are saved and they go and they confront the Vision. Vision explains what happened and they all go to return to Avengers Mansion. And the last page of this issue ends with the poem Ozymandias by Shelley. And it is such a fitting way to end this issue. So the poem talks about uh, a traveler who comes across the ruins of great statues and a great city in the desert. And as he kind of surveys the former glory that was this city and and these ruins, there's a statue that is broken. And the pedestal of the statue says, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. There's such a beautiful disconnect between the writing on this pedestal and the devastation of those same works that are laid out in front of this traveler. Especially when compared, you see the head of Ultron, you know, what is effectively this broken statue and the kid playing with it and kicking it and eventually breaking it. And the idea that Ultron was so powerful and so mighty that those who would consider themselves mighty i.e. the mighty Avengers, as they are frequently referred to, look on my works and despair. And here's Ultron, broken and shattered. And the poem ends, Nothing beside remains, round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. I mean, Roy Thomas and John Buscema just blew this ending out of the park. And I say this to the extent where, like, they hit it out of one baseball stadium so hard they got a home run in an entirely separate baseball stadium. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a Mets fan, so, you know, we'll, we'll use the Mets for an example. They knocked it out of Chase Field and got a home run at Yankee Stadium. That's how well they did this. It is really a spectacular ending to a really strong, really fantastic issue. Now, one thing I haven't mentioned so far that is certainly worth mentioning is the fact that throughout this issue, we are getting to see John Buscema play with panel layouts and storytelling in ways that we haven't seen since Avengers number 10. Really, up until this point, with, with that one exception, and that exception really is, is very small, we've basically only seen the standard panel layout. Now, the number of panels on the page changes based on storytelling. That's actually one of the ways you tell the story is by changing the number of panels and how the panels are laid out. In this, there are several times where there is no panel border and that some of the action actually crosses from one panel to the other. I think one of the best examples here is the second to last page where Ultron tries to throw Vision into the vat of energy. The first, third, and fourth panels don't have any border, and the third and fourth panels bleed over across several of the other panels, and it gives a great sense of action, especially between panels three, four, and five, where I really feel like it's one kind of fluid motion, panel three to panel four is still kind of the same moment panel five is just a half second half a moment later and then we move back on onto the normal story pace it, it takes a couple of panels and really slows time down and focuses on what amount to really only a few body movements as ultron attempts to destroy vision and this is used throughout not just on this page it just happens to be a really good example i also find it somewhat ironic that this is the first time we're getting this level of 
creative panel layout since Avengers number 10, which is the original appearance of Wonder Man. As we will discover next issue, Vision's personality is actually based on the brain patterns of Wonder Man, that before Wonder Man died, the Avengers took a copy of his brain pattern in hopes that someday they might be able to use it and, and somehow revive him, that he wouldn't die needlessly, you know, because of Baron Zemo's actions. So it's just interesting to me that this is really the first time we're getting to experiment this much with, with layout since that particular issue, given how important Wonder Man is going to be to the future of Vision. Overall, again, this is a really spectacular issue. It is a absolute classic Avengers issue, and it has one of the most classic Avengers covers ever. You know, this is this is a cover that has gotten parodied many, many times, and it is one of those Marvel covers that is almost instantly recognizable. I would put this cover up there with like Days of Future Past with Wolverine and Kitty Pride in front of the, the Wanted posters. I don't think it's been duplicated and copied anywhere near that much because that cover specifically has been copied and parodied many, many, many times. But this is certainly one of the most memorable Avengers covers ever. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we will be taking a look at Avengers number 58, Even an Android Can Cry. One final thought before I leave you guys is that I will be hosting a panel at Tidewater Comic Con again this year. I am super, super excited to be doing so. I am still working out the exact details of what I'm going to be talking about, but I think we're going to be looking into some Avengers origin stories and given the fact that we're basically coming to the penultimate chapter of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought it'd be nice to kind of look back at some of our original Avengers and how the team got together. So I'll be working out the details for that, but definitely if you're in the Tidewater, Virginia Beach area, make sure you head on over to Tidewater Comic Con on May 12th and 13th, and I will be presenting at noon on Saturday the 12th. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it. <laughs>